This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. IXL's all-inclusive online teaching and learning platform simplifies ed tech needs and accelerates achievement in 95 of the top 100 U.S. school districts. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and it helps you assess student performance through actionable real-time insights at every level of your school or district. This one solution performs work that typically requires dozens of different tools. Want to find out why so many leading districts trust IXL? Visit IXL.com forward slash B-E. That's IXL.com forward slash B-E. Every child deserves a team. That's the belief behind Jigsaw Learning, a proud sponsor of the B Podcast Network. And it's why the company, founded by educators Curtis and Lorna Hewson, focuses on ensuring success for all learners through collaborative response, an approach in which every child is supported by a team. Through customized professional learning that incorporates workshops, leadership development, online learning opportunities, and more, Jigsaw Learning can guide you every step of the way to create a plan to maximize the collective capacity in your schools. Learn more at jigsawlearning.ca. TL Talk Radio Season 5, Episode 20. Welcome to Season 5, Episode 20 of TL Talk Radio, a regular podcast with Lynn Funihatton and Randy Ziegenfuss, where our goal is to engage you in learning, motivate you to share your work, and inspire you to lead for the change we need in schools for the digital age. I'm Randy Ziegenfuss. And I'm Lynn Funihatton. Hello, Randy. Good morning. Good morning. So today we're speaking with Joe Sarasolo, former executive director of the Connecticut Association of Public School Superintendents. And we're going to refer to that as CAPS uh, throughout the interview. And we're talking with Joe about learner-centered education and the role of states um, in that transformation. So welcome to the show, Joe. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. We're looking forward to this conversation because Learner Centered is near and dear to our heart as well. So let's start the conversation with a personal story about how you got connected to CAPS and the work of developing these visionary resources that we're going to talk about today. Well, my connection to CAPS goes back to 1990, well, actually the 1980s when I became a superintendent of schools. I became a member of the organization. But uh, would be now 10 years ago, I became the executive director. And uh, we asked our superintendents, uh, our members, to identify for us the major public policy issues that needed to be addressed in the next five years. And we thought they'd give us four or five. They only gave us two. The distant second was, what do we do with some of the small districts in Connecticut? We've got 22 one-school school districts in Connecticut, and that's an issue by itself. But the big thing they said to us was, look, we are now expected to make sure every kid knows what they, as the content, the knowledge, and the skills they need to be successful after they leave us, every kid. And we're not designed to do that. We need to find a way to redesign education, uh, deep systemic change, so that we can make good on that expectation. They told us that, and so we put our members together to uh, come up with a report that would do that. And uh, I think it was seven years ago, we came out with an, a document uh, named NextEd, which calls for a major transformation of schooling in Connecticut. So it becomes what we call personalized learning. 
I think that term now is morphed into learner-centered uh, schooling, learner-centered education. That's how we got going on this, and we produced this report, and uh, the rest is history, as they say. <laughs> well, that's a perfect transition to talk about um, this first report, this first white paper, a look into the future of personalized learning in Connecticut. And in this report, for our listeners, you have four defined parts, creating the urgency for change, mm -hmm. defining personalized learning, examining personalized learning elements, and identifying policies that are hindering the personalization. And, right. um, you know, these are these are topics, as Randy said, that we can really connect connect to. We understand the urgency. We see um, schools and leaders and authors talking about personalization in all different contexts um, with all different meanings attached to that. And we realize that we have some state hindrances and wondering, you know, really connecting with your ideas about the policy barriers and suggest and suggestions um, to it sort of navigate that. So, so can you share some of the ideas from that section sure. with our listeners? Yeah, I'd be happy to. It, you know, what you, you just talked about was a major topic that kept coming up as we even developed the report. And we had to be careful not to say we can't do it because of these barriers. Mm -hmm. We just put that aside for a while and then decided afterwards, after the report came out, to uh, concentrate in three areas, policy, public will, and proof of concept. In the policy area, we started to identify those state policies that are barriers to moving to personalized learning. Uh, and then we also tried to develop some policies that would be incentives for districts to move in that direction. Some of the ones that were in our way in Connecticut were uh, state state statute actually, that set graduation requirements in terms of the old Carnegie units, that define credit in terms of how much time uh, youngsters actually spent in a course and really had nothing to do with how much they learned. Um, we had a defined and still do a minimum 180 day school year, uh, a minimum number of hours for a school day, all of that, that kind of thing really got in the way of moving towards personalized learning. So in the policy area, we were successful in getting uh, statutes changed so that school districts that want to award high school diplomas based on a demonstration of competencies, not based on how much time a youngster spends in a course, districts that want to do that can move in that direction. That's now allowable in the state of Connecticut. We also went through two task forces, both of which I ended up, I think I missed a meeting, so I ended up chairing both of them. And uh, the final result of that, of those two task forces, was that we got graduation requirements changed so that they're a lot more flexible now mm -hmm. than they used to be. Um, for example, uh, you didn't have to necessarily have so many credits and this, that, or the other thing. You could loosen that up so that uh, the, not only the amount of credits could be is, is now flexible, but how you define credit is now something that can be left up to the local district. So if they want to define it, not in terms of Carnegie units or seat time, but in terms of what students actually have learned, they can do that. So those were two major barriers that we were able to deal with. There are others as well. Um, a lot of them have to do with governance and 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 those areas, at least while I was at, at CAPS, and I've gone now a little over a year, we were not able to make much progress regarding. 
So let's move on to the next ed paper, the one that defines the vision and the plan. Um, and in there, uh, it also shows, shares the problems with Connecticut's, the challenges with Connecticut's education, and it's highlighted and core recommendations for change are made. Uh, share with us a few of the high-impact student-centered approaches which can be leveraged to transform education. Well, I think that, I mean, let me start to answer that question by going into the, the high leverage uh, problems that we have. Mm -hmm. Connecticut has this either the first, second, or third largest achievement gap in the country between youngsters who are not poor and youngsters who are e economically poor. Uh, other states try to vibe with us for that wonderful distinction. <laughs> uh, we are never going to get to the point where we start dealing with that until we can move towards learner-centered schooling. Mm -hmm. Because, number one, students need to have the time they, uh, that they need to learn well what it is they need to learn. Right now, we put kids on a conveyor belt, and uh, they start when they're age five, they leave us at the age of 18, and the amount uh, of what they learn varies considerably. We need to flip that paradigm so that learning is the constant, constant the constant rather, mm -hmm. and time is the variable. That, that throws out the grade, age grade structure, so that's a high leverage change that needs to be made if we're gonna to move towards learner-centered schooling. Youngsters need to move through uh, schooling at a pace that is appropriate for them. And that isn't to say they can hang around and do nothing. It means fairly rigorous standards, high expectations, but still giving every youngster the time they need to move in that direction. Number two, we need to transform ourselves so that we teach kids in a way that's consistent with their primary learning style. Right now in the what we call the legacy system, the traditional system, if we had one or two of the primary learning styles, we're lucky. Depending on whose research you look at, there's six or seven different ones. We need to start changing that so that youngsters who learn best in a visual way get a chance to learn that way. And you could go through every one of the learning styles and, and say that youngsters need to be given experiences that align well with their primary learning style. That kicks out a lot of the other things that we do in schooling. Uh, it's a major transformation. I would think those are the two if you're going to concentrate on two things, mm -hmm. to really move towards learner-centered schooling and in Connecticut, and I suspect in every other state and throughout the country, start dealing with the achievement gap. Number one, we need to flip the relationship between time and learning. Time needs to be the variable, learning the constant. And number two, youngsters need to be able to learn in a way that's consistent with how they learn instead of having to adapt how they learn to the way we teach them. Yeah, we can certainly connect with that. And you know, your first point about time being the variable for us, you know, in our system, everybody progresses through kindergarten, everybody progresses through first grade. There's no or very little variable um, there. And, right. you know, that's that's some heavy lifting to make those systemic changes and to sort of navigate all the operational challenges as well as the mindset challenge. It's a, it's a huge challenge. Uh, it requires some major retraining of everybody in the enterprise because we need to think differently about everything we do. Mm -hmm. And, and it's even equally important, I was going to say more important, but equally important, we need to turn and uh, change how we prepare people to be educators, mm -hmm. how we prepare teachers, how we prepare administrators. Because if we keep preparing them to go into the legacy system, 
that's where they're going to know. That's where they're going to be able to operate. And we're going to, we're just going to keep perpetuating the problem. So we've got some major challenges on our hands if, if we're going to move in this direction. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Legacy system. Hmm. So for leaders and for our listeners who want to dig a little deeper into the core recommendations, they can review the summary proposals white paper. Talk to us about the meaning behind that white paper um, and some of the big ideas there. Well, we, what we did, what we tried to do, uh, we actually put out three papers. The first, I think, is the first, the one you're referring to, I believe, is the first one we put out. Uh, that goes into quite, quite a bit of detail as to what needs to happen. Mm -hmm. uh, and... You know, I have to go through almost page by page to answer your, your question completely. But I would suggest, and we certainly can make it available, CAPS can make it available. I'm, I'm sure they'd be happy to do that. To anybody who wishes to take a look at it and to, and to delve more deeply into it. Um, we then followed that up with a second paper that um, identified the policy barriers, and we talked a little bit about that. And then the third paper we put out, and I'm not sure that we've shared that with everybody, uh, we did a next ed next steps paper, uh, and that summarized where we were and said, okay, where do we go from here? What we learned, uh, I think this is probably more central to answer your, answering your question, as we worked with districts, because I remember I said we, we worked on uh, public policy, public will, and proof of concept. Proof, the proof of concept work was to try and get districts that were ready to move in, in this direction to start moving. What we realized in working with them, providing coaching, direction, workshops, a whole bunch of other things, um, was that the first thing that had to happen was a community conversation, that people in the, uh, in the community served by the school district needed to be brought together in a fairly large-scale way to talk about what they expected to get out of their school system. Whenever that happened in Connecticut, and it happened I, while I was still at CAPS in 10 or 15 school districts, the answer to that was fairly high, uh, rigorous standards, deep knowledge, high level of skills, all that. But they wanted every kid to get that. And then when those districts started talking about how do we get there, the step beyond deciding what we want out of the school system, they came around to what we were then calling personalized learning. Uh, the, the three, uh, the two aspects I've talked about, plus trying to teach kids in a way that is uh, consistent with what they're interested in. Once those community conversations took place, then each district could decide, decide, could start deciding which next steps to take. In some cases, it was let's start at the, at the very early primary stage, kindergarten, first grade, second grade. Other districts decided they better start at the high school level. That was a little more challenging, but they felt they, they owed it to these kids who'd come through the legacy system to do something to help them become better, uh, better educated, have a better product at the end of the, uh, of the, uh, of the experience. The community conversation became vital because as you go through this process, wherever you're starting, be it elementary level, middle school level, high school level, inevitably some controversies are going to get, are going to arise. And the, whenever they did, the communities that, the districts that had the good community conversations were able to go back to the results of that conversation and say, okay, you may this may be controversial, but remember, this is what we all decided we wanted to see happen. So if all of a sudden you, you think we shouldn't get rid of the age grade structure, well, how are we going to make sure every kid progresses at a pace that's appropriate for them if we still move them along every year, whether they've learned everything or not? Mm -hmm. uh, those kinds of things. So that the community, I keep saying, I'm really emphasizing this, the community conversation was absolutely vital. On the other hand, 
the few districts who tried to plunge into, who decided to plunge into personalized learning, what we now call learner-centered schooling, without those community conversations, ended up having to retrench very quickly, and in some cases never got started again. So I'm curious, uh, on uh, this day, November 12th, 2018, where, where does this vision stand and what's CAP's role in it? Well, when I, all I can say for with great certainty is where it was a little over a year ago. Um, CAPS is still from, you know, once you leave the executive directorship of an organization, you're careful not to be intruding on the work of sure. the organization. Sure. Uh, my successor, however, has uh, continued the work. Uh, they have continued uh, working with the State Department of Education. I believe right now they're working on a major project to define even more clearly what it is they want every kid in Connecticut to know before they leave uh, public schooling. Uh, and that, as I understand it, will be used to then ratchet down uh, uh, really a continuum of learning for every kid as they go through the system. They continue to provide workshops for uh, leaders who wish to move their districts in this uh, direction. Workshops not only at the, um, at the uh, district level, but also at the school level. And they continue to provide coaching. Coaching is a very important aspect of this, much more important than workshops, because coaching gives you best-in-time help when you need it. So I believe they're still doing that. Uh, the policy work probably had to be put in abeyance because uh, we've had a uh, gubernatorial election. The incumbent governor did not run for re-election. He was a great supporter of personalized learning. Uh, the present commissioner of education in Connecticut uh, is a great supporter of personalized learning, but we have a tradition in Connecticut now, new governor, new commissioner. So I think the policy work was probably put in the, on the back burner for a while until all of that gets settled. Mm -hmm. I'm sure that now we've had the election. We know who the new governor is. We know who the new members of the legislature are. But that work will get, uh, will get ratcheted up again. So despite that, I think that What's interesting about this is I think CAPS is a great role model for other uh, state superintendent organizations, and the documents that you've created are a great blueprint to help those organizations start to have those conversations about how does this work fit into their particular state context and what steps can they take as superintendents and as organizations to help bring this about. So some some really um Good, good role models for, for superintendents and those superintendent organizations. Well, thank you for saying that. And, and uh, there are, at least a year and a half ago, 16 other superintendent, state superintendent associations moving in the same direction. Hmm. Um, we were not the first ones to move in this direction. Uh, we actually modeled our process after what's happening in Texas with the Texas Association of School Administrators. And there are 14 or 15 other uh, groups, uh, other, sta other state superintendent associations that uh, have been working in this direction. And again, I'm assuming it's still going on as of a, year, a little over a year ago. We were in regular, uh, regular uh, conversations and communications trying to help each other uh, out in that regard. Uh, the American Association of School Administrators also has put together an effort in this regard. They're bringing together the districts that are moving in this direction. Uh, there is a group out of uh, Washington, uh, now entitled Education Reimagined, that has a set of pioneer school districts that are working in this direction. So there's a lot of support going on out there. There's really a movement going on out there. 
towards learner-centered education. And uh, uh, we were a part of it at CAPS. Uh, other state uh, superintendents associations are a part of it. And both ASA and Education Reimagine at the national level are now becoming major movers in this direction. So we are we are well connected with Education Reimagined and find their work to be incredibly valuable as we progress on this journey. So appreciate that you um, shared them as part of that national movement and really pushing it. Yeah, they're, I find they're very important. The uh, I was really happy to see the first report that came out. It uh, said a lot of the things that we said in Next Ed, and um, so it's it's good to see. And I'm still doing some things with Education Reimagined. Uh, and it's always very interesting to work with that group. So let's, uh, before we invite you to share what you're working on next, we have uh, three lightning round questions for you. Are you ready? I'm ready. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, actually, these have been really great this season. We added this new this season, and it's allowed our listeners and us to find um, some additional resources to investigate after the podcast. So first question, who is one expert our listeners should connect with to learn about state policy and or transformation of education through the state lens? I would think is David Roof, who is the executive director of the uh, Council of the Great Schools Council. It's, uh, his headquarters are in Portland, Maine. Uh, he, has his, he and his organization have been working with the New England states in the very area of, of state policy. Okay, excellent. We'll check that out and link it in our show notes. And mm -hmm. if you were recommending one book to our listeners, what might it be? And if it's not a book, if it's another white paper or other resource, um, you know, lots of great contact there too. Actually, I think that the all the documents, again, a, 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 a commercial for Education Reimagined, all of the documents that they're putting out, uh, they, there is a weekly uh, online newsletter to yes the yes uh, we're familiar we can we'll yeah. add some links to the pioneering magazine and um their white papers as well yeah i think that the the best stuff being done nationally i think is being done through from my perspective through education reimagined excellent and is there an online site or source or person from whom you learn regularly Again, I'm, you know, this is going to sound like... Uh, That's okay. Like, Their stuff is worth uh, mentioning multiple say, times. <laughs> you know Kelly Young, the executive director? Yes. At, uh, imagine. I would connect with her. Could, the person they have on staff to deal with state policies, uh, I would connect with her. Uh, those two people are the ones that uh, I learned the most from in the recent past. Okay, excellent. Thank you. We'll link some of those ideas into our show notes. And uh, our last question for you, Joe, is uh, what's next for you? Are you working on anything that you'd like to share with our audience? Uh, actually doing some, some, again, Kelly Young is going to pay me for this, I think. I'm doing some volunteer work with Education Reimagined. Um, you're, I think, aware of the year of learning that's going to be launched, I think, next September. Mm -hmm. So I'm doing some work with them on that. Um, but also, we're trying to put an, uh, together an effort to zero in on one state and see if we can get a state flipped so it becomes a state where the dominant paradigm hmm. is learner-centered schooling. Uh, and we're in discussions about which state that should be, and I don't really want to talk about which ones we're talking about Let's now. Let's make it Pennsylvania. <laughs> no. 
Well, I can tell you, it's one of the states that's uh, that's on the list, uh, and uh, there, you know, a lot of this is um, contingent upon getting resources to do it. Mm-hmm. And the people who work on that at Education Reimagined are, are, are working in that uh, in that regard. I my own uh, thing uh, uh, that I'm most inter- interested in is, is that that work at the state level. Mm-hmm. If we can get one of the states in the United States to become learner-centered in terms of its dominant paradigm, I think we start moving towards Gladwell's tipping point um, and we can get other states to go in that direction. Because finally, districts all by themselves are not going to survive in this area if the states aren't there backing and not only backing them up, but helping them out a great deal. So mm-hmm. that's the work that I'm most interested in doing in the in the near future. Yeah, sounds... Um fascinating it sounds like it's heavy lifting and it sounds like it has the potential to really impact um all of us in education and in um in life you know as we move forward you know really what we're all about is realizing that every kid has gifts and helping them realize what their gifts are and developing them and so much in what we do in in the legacy school system tells them tries to tell them what their gifts are instead of helping them realize what their gifts are and developing them so I think that's very important work, and I'm excited about it. Yeah, thank you very much. Well, we've enjoyed this conversation, Joe. Um, for our listeners to learn more about Joe's work, you'll see links to his white papers there um, that were developed through CAPS. You'll see um, a link to David Roof and Great Schools Partnership and uh, also Education Reimagined and some of their resources. It was my pleasure talking to you. All right. Each episode, we leave you with a question to think about with the idea of provoking reflection and conversation. This episode's question, how might you or your organization use the CAPS resources along with today's conversation to push your thinking in transforming education? If you've enjoyed this episode, would like to comment or check out the resources shared today, visit the show notes at tltalkradio.org and look for season five, episode 20. That's all for now. We'll be back soon with another conversation featuring another innovative thought leader. Thanks again, Joe. Thanks, Joe. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, and improve students' performance on state assessments? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com forward slash BE to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all of these goals. That's IXL.com forward slash BE.